Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Occasionally, when you read the Old Testament, you discover stories that make you scratch your head. You start wondering how some of this stuff managed to get into the Bible. The interesting thing is, though, with some of these tales, the longer we scratch our heads, the more sense they start to make. And the story I want to share with you this morning is one of those. The first time I read it, I thought, well, that's a weird story. And as I meditated on it, I began to see layers. There was more to it than there seemed to be at first. And I hope that as we scratch our heads a little bit together and as we uh, meditate on this and pull back a few layers, that the relevance to an ordination will become apparent. So this is in 1 Kings chapter 13. I won't read to you the entire text, but I want to kind of skim over the top of the narrative so that you have a sense of the story that's taking place. If you know your Old Testament history, 1 Kings chapter 13 comes almost immediately after the division of the kingdom of Israel into two parts. So now there's a a southern kingdom and there's a northern kingdom. And this story takes place in the northern kingdom, in the city of Bethel, which is just across the border. You cross the border from the south to the north, you get to Bethel. And in Bethel, we find the king of the north, Jeroboam, the king of this new kingdom. And he is establishing worship in his new kingdom, in this temple that he set up on this high place. He has, uh, in the far north of his kingdom, set up a a golden calf for people to travel to and worship. And here, in, in the lower part of his kingdom, he set up another and then built a temple at Bethel from which to worship. So Jeroboam, at the beginning of 1 Kings chapter 13, is basically holding a consecration service. They're holding worship services in this new temple, at this new altar that's been set up. They're sacrificing animals and, and pouring the blood out on the altar to establish this new way of worshiping in the northern kingdom. But as he's doing this, the ceremony is interrupted. Because God has raised up a man of God from the south, from the kingdom of Judah, and sent him to Bethel with a word from the Lord, a word of judgment. So this man of God, who's never named in the text, walks into this place where the king is present, where all of the the leading people of the kingdom are present, and he essentially speaks a word of judgment to the king. This is in verse 3. He says that this place is under judgment, that that a king will come who will tear it all down. Then he says, this is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. Like an evil king in a melodrama, Jeroboam points his finger at this man and says, seize him. But when he does this, his hand dries up. It's paralyzed. He can't retract it back. The, The hand of accusation is frozen in midair. And then the sign that's just been promised is actually delivered. Like immediately, this will be a sign. And then the altar that they've just been consecrating is broken. And the ashes pour off of it just as the man of God said they would. The king is humbled. He's forced to backpedal. He has to apologize in in an apparent 
instance of repentance, he asks the man of God to intercede on his behalf, to pray to the Lord so that his hand will be restored. And that's, that happens. Afterwards, King Jeroboam invites the man of God back to his place. He says, come to my house. Let's celebrate. Let's eat together and drink together. And the man of God turns him down. This is uh, in verses 8 and 9. The man of God says, if you give me half your house, I will not go in with you. And I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For so was it commanded me by the word of the Lord. So he's actually been given a command to go into the northern kingdom, to go to the altar, to, to pronounce this curse on it, but also not to eat or drink while he's there. That's the command of the Lord. So when the king invites him, the man of God says, no, I will not commune with you. I will not share your table. That's the setup. So far, so good. But the man of God leaves that public place. He saddles his donkey and he travels back south. And as he does this, word spreads of the feat that's just been accomplished. You can imagine people are talking. The, the new church in town just had its altar broken in pieces. And, and the ashes of the sacrifice fell down. The king himself was publicly humiliated. So everybody's talking about this. And in the city of Bethel, there's an old prophet who lives. An old prophet, again, who's never named. We don't know his history. We don't know his background. All we know is he's an old prophet. He lives in Bethel with his sons. And when he hears the story, he tells his sons to saddle his donkey. And he hops on his donkey and he goes out in search of the man of God. These are donkeys. It's not a high-speed chase. He's able to overtake the man of God. And when he does, he basically extends the same invitation Jeroboam did. Come back to my house. Come back and drink with me and eat with me. And the man of God repeats the same command he's been given. I can't do it. I can't do it. I've been commanded not to eat or drink of anything while I'm here. Pronounce my judgment and then go. But then the old prophet does something interesting. Jeroboam, the bad king, he let the man of God go. But the old prophet, he makes up a story. He lies. He says, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, bring him back with you into your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So the man of God says, well, the Lord commanded me not to eat or drink while I'm here. And this old prophet says, actually, an angel just came to me and said, you should eat and drink here and you should do it at my house. And the man of God relents. He goes back with him. He's deceived. He goes back to Bethel. He eats and drinks with the old prophet. And, and a little ironic twist, the old prophet who's just lied about having a word from the Lord gets a real word from the Lord. Suddenly, God speaks through this prophet, and he speaks a word of judgment to the man of God who's just disobeyed him. Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, eat no bread and drink no water, your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. For the first time, we saw a judgment like this pronounced, a sign articulated immediately afterwards it was fulfilled. Same thing happens here. 
the man of God gets on that donkey. He rides out of Bethel. He goes on the road where a lion meets him and kills him. And his body is there on the road in the northern kingdom. He dies before he reaches the land of his fathers, just as that word of judgment predicted. The lion stands beside the dead man so that people passing by on the road see this spectacle. This man of God who stood up to Jeroboam in the temple in Bethel at the altar, and now there he is lying dead on the road, killed by that lion. The old prophet hears about this, and an interesting shift takes place in his attitude. He realizes that the man lying dead in the road is the man who just communed with him, who just drank water and, and, and ate bread at his table. He once again has his sons saddle up his donkey. He goes out and he fetches the body of the dead man of God, brings it back to his own tomb, and has the man buried there. And they mourn over him and they say, Alas, my brother. And the old prophet who deceived him says, when I die, I want to be buried with him. They had broken bread together at the table. and They will spend death together, their bones, in the same grave. And then at the very end of the chapter, a little coda, it turns out that Jeroboam's repentance was not real. That once he had the power to use his hand again, he continued where he left off. He didn't stop the, the worship that he'd instituted in the north, the false worship that the, the man of God had condemned. Instead, he just went on ordaining anybody who was willing to serve as a priest in this new religion, this new order that he was founding. So the problem that the man of God had entered into the north to solve, that man of God lies dead, and the problem continues, continues on, until the days of the New Testament continues on even to this day, when there is still a conflict in the Holy Land about where God is meant to be worshipped, in the high places of the north, or in the temple in Jerusalem. There's a lot going on in the story, and we can't unpack all of the layers, but I think it's helpful to see this narrative and think about it in terms of three sins and three signs. We see three sins, each performed by a different sinner, and three signs, at least three signs, that accompany them. Signs of judgment. The first sin, of course, is the king's false worship. King Jeroboam's politics got in the way of his religion, you might say. God had promised his people a kingdom. In the book of Deuteronomy, he actually lays down expectations for what this future kingdom will look like after the days of the judges where people did whatever was right in their own eyes. God established a kingdom. It had a bad king to begin with, a king who exemplified all that was worse in kings. But after that, God raised up a shepherd king, David, a man after his own heart. And that kingdom that had been promised began to flourish. And God met with that shepherd king, and he made a covenant promise to him. And he said to him that, that your son, your son, your offspring, your seed, will build a temple for me, and I will establish his kingdom forever. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 7. To David and to everyone who heard the story, it was obvious who God was talking about. He was talking about Solomon. He was talking about the son of David, who did 
build a temple in Jerusalem for God, who did build that temple and whose kingdom it seemed would be established forever. His reputation, his glory went throughout the world. It seemed as if the promise that was made, like the the signs that we've just seen, was going to be immediately fulfilled. And yet the kingdom that was established in the days of David and Solomon did not survive a single generation after Solomon's death. Instead, it was divided. Solomon had been a great monarch, but he'd also taxed his people into servitude. When they went to his son, Rehoboam, and asked to have that burden lifted, (laughs) Rehoboam said, you know what? If you think my dad was a tyrant, wait till you see how I rule, because I intend to be much sterner with you than he ever was. And this broke the kingdom. This is why the the ten tribes in the north left. That divided kingdom, if you think about it, is the source of so much longing that you see in the Bible for the kingdom to come. It's the reason why the, the disciples of Jesus are constantly asking him not questions like, when are you going to come again in your second coming? And, and when will there be this bodily resurrection that you've talked about? They ask things like, is it now time to establish the kingdom? It's good that you did this, this other stuff, but is it now time to get back to the main program of restoring the broken kingdom of Israel? And this is where it dates back to, that there had been a kingdom promised, and for a moment they'd had it, and then it was broken. But the failure of that political kingdom points to a coming spiritual kingdom, just as the failure of the old covenant sacrifices pointed to the sacrifice of Christ to come. But Jeroboam faced a political problem where worship was concerned because he's just founded a new kingdom in the north, and everybody goes down south to worship. Where your altar is is where your heart is. And he recognizes this. And his fear is that if my people continue to go outside my borders and worship in the south, I will lose my kingdom. They will turn on me and kill me. And so I need a solution. The temple was built at great cost, great expense. You can imagine the people who bore that burden. Well, it was a little unpopular. And Jeroboam came up with a great idea to create another kind of worship separated from that temple in the south, a worship here in our homeland. We don't have to leave where we live. We can go to the high places of our ancestors, and we can worship God there. And so he went to Bethel. He went to Dan in the north, and he established these golden calves, these places of worship. The significance of Bethel, I mean, it's a good place to choose. This is where Jacob had had his vision of the ladder up to heaven. This is where Jacob had built an altar. So Jeroboam could could argue that this temple thing, this is newfangled. This is progressive. We're going to get back to our roots. We're restoring the old worship. We're worshiping God as the patriarchs did. This is better. That's the first sin. Because it met his needs, because it was politically expedient, the king decided to alter the worship that had been commanded by God. He receives that first sign, a sign of the broken altar and the the dried-up hand, which signifies that such idolatry will bring judgment. Although the sign, when it's delivered, brings about apparent repentance on the part of Jeroboam, that repentance, as time shows, isn't genuine. He makes that communion offer, 
the man of God, the man of God declines, and we learn for the first time about this command that God has given. If you think about the command, it's interesting. This man has been ordered to go to pronounce judgment on this idolatrous altar. But while he's there, he shouldn't break bread with the people there. He shouldn't drink water. He shouldn't enjoy their hospitality. But he's been sent on a mission to call them out. And he's not meant to be reconciled to them. He's not meant to share the table with them. He is, so to speak, in the world, but not of the world. It's a very specific task given to him by God. And the second sin is the old prophet's divine deception. He proclaims that his own word is, in fact, the word of God. If you think about his motivation, why does the old prophet make up this story about an angel coming to him? Some scholars think that Jeroboam and the old prophet were both trying to corrupt the man of God. They were trying to sort of lure him in. If he will enjoy our hospitality, he will probably relent and and withdraw this curse but I feel like when you read the whole story and you see the actions of this old prophet, maybe there's, there's a deeper psychological depth here. This is an old prophet who presumably at some point had enjoyed a relationship with God, had, had, had exercised a true prophetic office, had had a word from the Lord, but no more. Now we find him living in Bethel. We find him living in the center of a, a false worship, not standing up against it. He's not at the altar, denouncing what's going on. He's at home, letting it all happen around him. And then he hears that in his city, in his very city, a man of God has has been raised up with with a prophetic word so powerful that, that immediately you see the consequences of it. And that story perhaps electrifies him. Maybe he experiences something we might call ministry envy and would like to break bread with this guy, so maybe it could rub off on him, recapture those glory days. And he's willing to do anything to make it happen, even to lie, even to lie about a calling that he probably once took very seriously. He deceives the man of God. He tells him an angel has come. He passes off his own desires as the will of God. And you might expect that he would drop dead right there, but he doesn't. Nothing bad happens to him for this deception. In fact, the man of God believes him and goes home with him and disobeys. And at the table, there's a second sign. The man who lies about having a word from God now does have a word from God, and it's a word of judgment. And like the first sign, it is almost as soon as it's spoken. Why was the man of God deceived? I don't know about you, but if God said to me, I want you to go there, I want you to pronounce judgment, I don't want you to eat or drink while you're there, this is really important, don't do it. And you go and you do that thing, but on your way back, a random guy comes up to you and says, well, actually an angel just told me that you should do the thing that God just told you not to do. How convincing would that be? I don't think it would be very convincing unless you wanted to be convinced. If you imagine yourself in that same situation, I mean, this man of God, 
he's just done something remarkable. He's just had the most glorious moment in his public ministry. Not only has he pronounced a word from the Lord and then seen with his own eyes the destruction that was caused, but the king who raised a hand up against it and had that hand paralyzed in midair, he's got to be feeling pretty good. And then when the king tries to coddle him, he stands up to him in public before everyone. He demonstrates his integrity. And that works up quite an appetite. So that on the way home, maybe he's feeling hungry. Maybe he'd, he'd like to get a little refreshment before he begins the journey. Maybe he decides that the command that seems so absolute might actually be pretty flexible. He decides based on the authority of the first prophet who happens to walk up and talk to him, the first man who tells him what he wants to hear, that it's okay not to hold himself to that same standard. And then the third sign, the lion comes and kills him. And it's an interesting kind of lion. It signifies that the judgment that's been promised will come. This is not the lion that Peter talks about, where he says Satan is like a lion prowling around, looking for someone to devour. This lion actually doesn't devour. It's kind of unusual. The lion kills him, but doesn't eat him. The lion leaves him there in the street and, and stands there, basically, waiting for people to observe. So everybody gets a good look at what's happened. The lion does not consume the man. It only kills him. And then the old prophet collects the body, and there's a strange kind of sympathy between the two. The man who deceived and the man who was deceived find themselves in a kind of bond, sharing a grave together. And we learn that idolatry in the northern kingdom will go on as usual. But the old prophet says that the judgment that was foretold will come to pass. This will be judged in time. But what are the consequences for the land when its leaders put their politics ahead of their worship? When its prophets pass off their own word as the word of the Lord? When its men of God compromise in private what they proclaim in public? What are the consequences? You get Samaria. You get the northern kingdom. You get idolatry that justifies itself as the true religion. But if you serve God today, then you can relate to all of these three sins. Right? I mean, we all know what it's like to put our own interests, our political or financial or social welfare, ahead of our faith. We've all thrown up altars in convenient places rather than worshiping God the way he desires. We all know what it's like to pass off our own ideas, our own desires, as if they were God's, and to convince ourselves and others that we should listen to ourselves instead of God. We all know what it's like to confess one truth in public and live another way in private. We've all let ourselves off the hook. We've given ourselves permission to bend or break the commandments that it's very important other people keep. And if this is true for all of us, it's just as true for ministers. But what are the consequences for the church when its ministers put their own interests ahead of God's? When they substitute their own beliefs for God's? And when they speak one way in public and live another way in private? We don't have to get into a time machine and travel from ancient Israel to find out answer. Those consequences are what we live with now. 
today as always, a minister must set an example by putting his worship ahead of his self-interest. He must proclaim the word of God and not his own word. He must be faithful both in the spotlight and in the shadows. Because if the shepherds don't do this, how can the flock? Some of you have heard me tell the story of of days long gone by when uh, I was a Baptist deacon and I was corrupting the minds of the youth by giving them what I called the Reformed Care Package. It was a bundle of photocopies. It was meant to introduce them to a deeper understanding of Scripture. And one of the things that was in that bundle was a copy of J.I. Packer's introduction to John Owen's book called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. And it's interesting, as I look at 1 Kings 13, these three sins and these three signs, because in Jesus we find the death of sin and the final sign what he is. It's what he does for us. In John chapter 4, that famous story of the woman at the well, Jesus enters into the question that that is first being raised in 1 Kings chapter 13, a kind of worship war that has been ongoing. When we talk about the woman at the well, that that story touches on a lot of ideas, and typically When I talk about it, the thing I I want people to understand is, in that story, you're not Jesus, you're the woman. You're meant to identify with that woman, and Jesus is the one who tells you all that you've ever done. But it's interesting that once that happens, once she has that encounter with Jesus, uh, she sees her opportunity to solve one of these controversial questions. Right Now, we would probably do like a Facebook Live thing and get him on there and say, no, Jesus, well, I've got you here. Please tell us, where should we worship? Who was right? In other words, was Jeroboam right or was Solomon right? Should we worship here at the high places of the patriarchs or should we worship down south in the fancy temple? Which one should we do? Jesus says, neither, neither. This is John 4, starting in verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming. When neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus is basically doing there the thing Tim Keller does, right? He's offering a third way. It's like this option or that option. Oh, no, there's a third option. And it turns out the third way is the right way. Jesus, the same way. Should we, should we rebuild the glory of the temple? Like, should we reinstitute the sacrificial system at Jerusalem, the glory days of Solomon? Is that the point? Should we get back to that and restore the purity of that or? Or would it be better for us to reach back even farther, even farther and worship in the old high places? Worship at Bethel, where Jacob built his altar. Jesus says, no, neither of those things is right. Neither of those things is right. The worship of God doesn't look backward to some historical moment for its fulfillment or its realization. Instead, those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus is here to proclaim that now everything is changing. 
everything is changing. The solution is not to favor one faction over the other. The solution does away with it all by fulfilling it. Why does he offer this third way? How can Jesus speak this way? Because Jesus was the seed of David. He was the one who had been promised. The son who would build a temple, only the temple that he built was himself. He said, if you destroy this temple, I'll build it back up again in three days. And that's what he did. Indeed, his people, the church, or a temple he has built, a dwelling place for God. The old political kingdom, whether north or south or reunited, was never the point. It was a sign. It was a shadow pointing to a future kingdom. Those old kingdoms had failed. They had failed. But his kingdom is forever. She hears this. The woman says to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The cross of King Jesus was the final sign, the one that puts sin and death to death. Where other kings have failed us, other prophets have lied to us, other leaders have said foolish things, strutting self-righteously in public only to betray themselves and us in private. Jesus proclaims the true worship. Jesus is the true word of God, and Jesus obeys all that is commanded by God and gifts that obedience to us. In other words, Jesus preaches the true kingdom, and that's what his ministers should do. The lesson of 1 Kings 13 is not that a faithful minister should be perfect in worship, perfect in proclamation and perfect in obedience, we've never ordained such a person, and we never will. The lesson is simply that a faithful minister, despite all pressure to the contrary, must point to the one who is perfect in worship, perfect in proclamation, perfect in obedience. He must point, in other words, to the true kingdom, to its true king, Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.